thank you for being the greatest father imaginable. So great that I, I really can't comprehend how much you love me, how much you love us, how merciful you are. And Lord, as we turn to you, stir our hearts so that we begin to dream your dreams and that we begin to follow your way and that our obedience to you will lead us on a path where this world can know salvation through the love that only you have. And I thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us. And may we be more like Abraham. Might we really long after the desires of your heart. But we praise you, wonderful Father, for all that you are for us. In your name, amen. something that I have never done before. And so I hope that you will uh, give me a little bit of uh, liberty and room to do something a little different. So two weeks ago on Pentecost, we talked about how God at Pentecost restored our native tongue, this language of love that God has for humanity. And we talked about how Uh, What was taken away at Babel was returned at Pentecost. And then last week we talked about the importance of having communion with God and community with each other in order for us to be effective ministers of the gospel. You with me? About two months ago, our our church um, had our district assembly uh, and we... In case you aren't familiar with the Church of the Nazarene, we're part of 110 churches just in Central and North Florida. And so we gathered together. There were a little under 1,000 of us that were there that were representing those 110 churches. And we heard a speaker, Dr. Kathy Mowry, um, and she delivered a message. I leaned over to Jen immediately and said, our church needs to hear this. And she said, yeah, they do. And I said, I'm going to ask her if I can preach it. And Jen said, why don't you just let her preach it? And so I've never done this before, but I want you to hear what God is doing in the hearts of not only 110 churches around North Florida, not only our region, uh, but something that has been stirring in the hearts of our leadership here at Port Orange Church of the Nazarene, because what she is saying lines up perfectly with what our board and pastoral staff have been feeling the call of God for the last two years. And so we're going to hear from Kathy today via video, and then next week we're going to follow it up, and we're going to hear from Pastor Jason about how some of these things, from hearing and speaking our native tongue and communion and community and ministry and hearing the voice of God and the need to change and shift gears, And then Jason's going to talk about how that's working in his life. And we're going to call you all to begin praying about how you can become 
more effective ministers here in Port Orange and New Smyrna and Daytona and anywhere you live. Does that make sense? So let me pray and then we'll show this video. Jesus, I pray that although this was spoken two months ago by someone that most of the people in this room don't know, the word is your truth. I pray that you'll help us to get past the distraction of a video versus live. And I pray that you will help us to hear the words that you have for us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. We want to, uh, in just a minute, you're going to get to hear uh, from our mission speaker, Dr. Kathy Mowry. Uh, she's from Trevecca Nazarene University and is involved in a, in a number of things. Uh, but one thing that she is passionate about is helping see the culture that's going on and navigating ministry, missions work, in the midst of that culture. And so if you would, uh, give Dr. Dr. Mallory a round of applause and let's invite her out this, uh, this afternoon. Well, I thought I was going to have a heart attack when I realized that I had just turned onto an interstate ramp. It wasn't my first time behind the wheel, but it was my first time behind the wheel of a stick shift. And I had been driving a stick shift for exactly one block. Except driving was too nice of a word for what I was doing. I couldn't remember what to do, and the more anxious I got, the worse it got. This wasn't like anything I had ever learned before. In fact, I had always been a good driver. I was proud of my driving record with no accidents. But here I was in my mid-30s trying to learn to drive a stick in an unfamiliar city. I was home for a week while my son Jonathan was having tonsil and adenoid surgery. Um, and I was, So I was home from Ukraine, and I made the mistake of telling my sister-in-law, bless her heart, that I did not drive in Ukraine because I didn't drive a stick. That apparently was the wrong thing to say. Within a few minutes, we were in the car. We were just going to take a run around the block. She put me in the driver's seat, acted like that was all we were going to do, and then told me to turn right, only it was an interstate ramp. Now, confess, how many of you have laughed at someone learning to drive a stick? It was crazy. That dumb car kept stalling. I had nothing to do with it. We would lurch and stall, lurch and stall, The whole car would vibrate as if it was afraid of me. And every time that happened, my frustration grew as we bumped hard to a standstill. I couldn't keep it going. And if I ever did get any momentum at all, I couldn't tell when to shift gears. So finally, I drove for too many miles because I was going really, really slow. (laughs) Because I was afraid shifting gears would be the wrong choice. Elizabeth kept saying, listen for the hum. What hum? I would scream. The hum. Listen. I listened. Nothing. Lurched. Stalled. People honked. 
They sped around us. They made faces. They did other things that I shouldn't mention at a district assembly. I cried. I hugged the side of the road. I felt like a fool. I might have screamed at Elizabeth a little bit, or more than a little bit. It has been many years since then, and I still have not learned to drive a stick. And frankly, it is a miracle that Elizabeth and I have any relationship at all. I shudder to remember that day. I shudder at what the world around me was thinking as I went down that interstate highway. And I shudder every time I remember Elizabeth saying, listen for the hum. (laughs) But it strikes me that as we try to participate in the mission of God in the world today, it is a little like learning to drive a stick. There comes a time when the things that we knew to do in another day and another kind of car, or in this case, ministry, will not work in this car or in this context. And we don't know what it looks like to retrain ourselves. And so we lurch and stall, lurch and stall, or go way too slow because we're afraid to take the risk of changing gears. And we aren't trained to listen for the hum of the spirit that says, it's time to switch gears. Now, can anyone relate? Did we just go through a season of COVID and did anyone feel like you lurched and stalled? Your district superintendent, who's one of the finest, by the way, um, asked me to take a tiny little topic He said he wanted me to talk about the whole people of God participating in the whole mission of God (laughs) in 30 minutes. But let's talk for a minute about what that involves. Acts 1-8 is a wonderful verse, but Jesus is saying this to his disciples right before he leaves. And he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's take away, just take apart um, some of the pieces in that verse, just for a second. You will receive power. Power, we need power, right? But not the kind of power that takes over empire. The kind of power that's shaped like a cross. The kind of power that is self-emptying love. That's the kind of power we get. You'll receive that power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, because the Holy Spirit is essential for mission. None of this works if the Spirit doesn't show up. And Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea. So think about the disciples who are hearing that on that first day. Jerusalem and all Judea, that's familiar territory. That's where people like us live. The people who would have been in Jerusalem and Judea were also Jews, and they understood the history of relationship with God that that Israel had had through the years. This was familiar, comfortable space. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. And this is when the disciples probably looked at each other. Jesus, why would you say that? You know Samaritans are not our favorite. And you know there are plenty good reasons why. They're half-breeds. And they could contaminate us. They might rub off on us. 
and we would be unclean. Samaria is perhaps the hardest of all in this list because these are the people who disgust us somehow. These are the folks we think of as less than human, even though we would never say that out loud, and especially not from the platform of a district assembly. These are the people we blame for their own misfortunes. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I actually like the way we used to say that when I was growing up, because it sounds farther away. The uttermost parts of the earth, right? The places that are furthest from us in language and culture, the places that we save our money to go on work and witness trips, or that we send missionaries to, we want to go there because people there have not heard about Jesus. But Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are to bear witness to the gospel. Let's look at this word witnessing, though, for just a minute. (laughs) It says, you will be my witnesses. But sometimes, at least for several decades, the way we have used that word has just gotten one little piece of the pizza. (laughs) We've used the word witnessing sometimes when we would talk about a certain kind of gospel presentation sometimes involving spiritual laws and diagnostic questions. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And we learn to call this witnessing. Now, I'm not saying that there was nothing ever good about that. (laughs) I know really faithful people who were faithful witnesses using witnessing as their main method. But what I am trying to say is we have taken a word, witnesses, that should be so much bigger And we have narrowed it down to one little meaning of the word. And when we talk about witnessing, some of us love it, and some of us are scared of it. And some of us were reached by it, and some of us felt like victims of it. But what if we aren't supposed to just do witnessing? What if we're supposed to be witnesses? And so this is where I need a couple of diagrams to help you understand what I'm talking about. Those are coming. The Jews before Jesus had expected, yes, there it is. I'm going to step over here. The Jews before Jesus had expected that there were these two eras the era of the kingdom of earth, or the kingdoms of earth, and the era of the kingdom of heaven. This was the, the idea that heaven was coming was not a new idea to the Jews. They believed that there would be a day when the kingdoms of heaven, were, of, of earth, were replaced by the kingdom of heaven, and everything would be made new, and the lion would lie down with the lamb, and the world would be healed, and Israel would be put on top of the totem pole. Um, they also believed that at that point there would be bodily resurrection. They believed so much of this. What they did not believe or did not expect is our next diagram. They did not expect that one person would be resurrected before all the rest. They didn't expect that Jesus would show up here and now and say, the kingdom is here. It is here, and it is still coming. 
And they didn't, they didn't have any framework for knowing that this was a time between the times, between the already and not yet of the kingdom. But that, my friends, is the area where we live. The church has our mission in that overlap of the kingdom of the kingdoms of earth and the kingdom of heaven. And so, as we are witnesses, we witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but we also witness to what's coming. And we bear witness by embodying what that looks like in the world where we are. With my students, I often illustrate this as Baskin-Robbins' little pink spoon. Anybody like Baskin-Robbins? You go into Baskin-Robbins, and you can get a little taste of what's coming. The kingdom of God is breaking into the present era. And as the church, we're to be on display, showing the rest of the world what it will look like when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, when heaven and earth are joined and all is made new. We are the foretaste of that. So we look to that future that is coming, and we see there will be no more hunger. Hmm, how do we end hunger here and now? We look to that future and we'll say, there'll be no slavery. Well, then how do we work against trafficking in the city where we are? We see there'll be no oppression of others. So how do we eliminate oppression of others in our own backyards? We see that every tribe and language will be sitting at one table together feasting. So how do we begin to tear down the walls between races and ethnicities here in our own city? How do we practice this? We see that every knee will bow before Jesus. How do we do that now in an embodied fashion and invite others to do so? When we become the embodiment of God's kingdom on earth, we become those little pink spoons. We become a preview of coming attractions. We offer a taste of what's coming. That is all caught up in what it means to be witnesses. And we need to reclaim this very important word. So we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us, and we will be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I could just stop there because I've answered Dale's question. (laughs) Except, while we do parts of this really well, we struggle to do certain parts of this, don't we? This isn't the car we've been driving, is it? Most of our models have been building-centric, not display people out in our communities. We don't have muscle memory for some of the practices of the church that are called for in the whole mission of God. So we keep trying to do what we've always done, but now that makes us lurch and stall. And sometimes it feels like we're falling apart. Here's what's important for us to remember today as we gather. That this has often been the story of the church throughout history. And we aren't supposed to do things the way we always have. In every age, the Spirit has guided the church to new ways to contextualize the message. New ways to embody the kingdom of God in the here and now. Very often, the church has had to listen for the hum of the Spirit, telling her it is time to switch gears. This is illustrated really well in the history of missions. 
You know, we didn't always send missionaries the way we get so excited about now. That's a relatively new phenomenon. It was in the late 1700s that Christians in Europe and North America began to hear that hum. There was a new wind of the Spirit, and people began to have their hearts broken for the ends of the earth. They wanted to go where people did not know the name of Jesus, and they were willing to forsake their own comfort in order to do that. In fact, many of those earliest missionaries in the late 1700s packed their belongings in a coffin to put on the boat because they planned to go and die in the place that they were going. This is the beginning of what we think of when we think of modern missions and missionaries. So young people like William Carey and Amy Carmichael began to go places all over this planet where they would settle on the coast of countries. William Carey started the first university in India. He translated scriptures. His influence was felt in profound ways. You know, they used to, when a man would die, they would burn his body on a funeral pyre, and then they would take his living widow and burn her as well. William Carey, by his influence, almost single-handedly affected a country to end a centuries-long practice of that. Amy Carmichael's Donovar Fellowship, also in the southern tip of India, rescued girls from temple prostitution long before today's anti-trafficking movements. She formed homes for them. She raised them to know Jesus. These missionaries faced insurmountable odds and great danger as they worked for justice in these places as a witness to the kingdom of God that was coming. But they said, we will learn language and culture and try new things and suffer losses, but we'll keep going. And we'll try more new things. And sometimes we'll fail, but we will get up and try again. It was all very experimental. None of us really knows what we're doing, but we can't resist the call. Sometimes a lifetime of work would go up in flames. William Carey had translated the scriptures, the whole Bible, into another language that he had had to write the alphabet for. And it went up in a house fire, and it was gone. And while the smoke was still rising from the ashes of his home, Carey picked up his pen and started over again. Page one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The persistence of those early missionaries knew no end. Pretty soon, though, something began to change. There was a distinct hum. (laughs) And Hudson Taylor began to hear the Spirit say, hey, it's time to shift gears. To this point, missions had only been on the coasts, only where there were English colonies that offered a a degree of comfort and protection. But Taylor felt the call to move into the interior. And that meant something different. It meant remote villages, smaller towns, no Western influence, no comforts, more danger, new languages. This meant leaving European influences behind and beginning to identify with the people that they were serving and actually to dress as they did. Inland mission societies began to be formed. The China Inland Mission, the Sudan Interior Mission, This was a whole different way of doing missions. They went to great lengths to contextualize the gospel. Oh, they didn't leave the coasts or the missions that were started there. It wasn't either or. It was both and. 
They wanted to be in all the places where the story of Jesus was not known. So they said, we will become babies in this place and let them raise us and learn language. And we will sound like two-year-olds for a while and immerse in culture and try new things and suffer losses, big losses. But we will keep going. And sometimes we will fail, but we'll get up and try again. It's all very experimental. None of us exactly knows what we're doing, but we can't resist the call. We can hear the hum of the Spirit. It's time to shift gears. Do you know as those missionaries wrote home, a movement was started. The student volunteer movement in 1885 and 1886 was one part of this. A group would go from campus to campus in the United States. And they would tell college students at all the colleges, not just Christian colleges, all the colleges, that the need is so great in the interiors of these countries. They said, we need to move. You need to go. (laughs) In fact, unless you feel called to stay home, you should go be a missionary. And hundreds of young men and women signed a pledge card that they would go to the foreign field. And the crazy thing is, they did. If the statistics are correct, one out of every 37 college students in the United States signed up to be a missionary. Hudson Taylor's movement in the interior of China recruited 6,000 missionaries. At the height of this moment, they all really believed that unless you were specifically called to stay at home, you should become a missionary to the foreign field. Over time, though, we developed the idea that only certain people were to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. I wonder how things changed. But likely it was this mission fervor with the interior movement that that influenced the sending of missionaries by a few holiness groups that would merge in 1908 to become the Church of the Nazarene. Once that merger happened, missionaries all over the world were sent a letter by ship that would get there months after it happened, and they would find out that they were missionaries now for a new denomination called the Church of the Nazarene. But we have a rich history in our denomination of sending missionaries to cross language and cultural barriers with the gospel. It's one of the things we do best. And oh, how I thrilled to the stories of those missionaries as a child growing up in the Church of the Nazarene. They echoed in my mind and my heart, and I wanted nothing more than to be a missionary. But towards the end of the 20th century, it happened again. The spirit began to hum, and someone noticed that it was time to shift gears. We had reached the coast, and we had reached the inlands. But people like missiologist Ralph Winter felt God was calling them to pockets of people that were hidden in the world. Those who didn't have the scripture in their language or a single reproducible church in their culture. So places that the gospel hadn't been able to go because of unique barriers, unique languages, or because of countries that said they were closed to missionaries coming in. A century before this, though, missionary Adoniram Judson had said this, there are no closed countries, only countries to which Christians are not willing to pay the price to take the gospel. And so these unreached people groups began to be reached by missionaries 
who had to start entirely new models in order to get there. They had to creatively access these countries. And so we talked today about creative access missions. Oh, we didn't leave the coast or the missions that we started there. We didn't leave the interiors. It was both and. (laughs) We wanted to be in all the places where the story of Jesus was not known. And so missionaries to unreached people groups said, hey, we'll go find these groups and we will become babies among them and let them raise us in their culture and we will learn language and we'll sound like two-year-olds for a while and we will immerse in cultures not our own and try new things and suffer losses, big losses, but we'll keep trying. And sometimes we will fail, but we'll get up and try again. It's all very experimental. None of us really knows what we're doing. And it isn't really safe. We aren't called to be safe. And we can't resist the call. We can hear the hum of the Spirit. It's time to shift gears. Somewhere in these years, missionary Leslie Newbigin returned to his native England after years of ministry as a missionary in India. Newbigin was used to seeing this kind of spirit-driven, experimental kind of mission that recontextualized in every new situation. But when he came back home to the very countries that had sent the missionaries to begin with, he began to notice that the churches had lost their missionary calling in the places where they were. They were ignoring their changing neighborhoods. In fact, they had separated church from mission. Church was here, but mission was over there somewhere. They had forgotten that the church exists by mission like a fire exists by burning. And Leslie Newbigin began to hear the hum. The spirit was moving. It was time for the church in England and North America to recover its missional identity. And so for a few years, we've been trying to figure out how to drive the car called missional church in our communities instead of attractional church that only happens in our buildings. But while we've been doing this, something else has been shifting. You see, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, these used to be geographical. But while the church spent years rearranging the furniture without looking outside the window... Something shifted. There was a great tornado that picked up our buildings and sat them down in a whole new world. When we step outside the doors now, we don't always recognize what we see, do we? Because now Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth are on one city block. Now all three are in my Walmart and in my McDonald's and in the neighborhood school. Migration and the world's huge refugee crises are sending into our communities some of the very people that would require creative access if we were to go to their homelands. How will we creatively access them here? And something else has been going on too. Those countries in Europe and North America who had primarily been the ones for a long time sending missionaries to far-off places, those countries are becoming less and less Christian. 
And all around us, there are people who don't know the story of Jesus at all. Huge cathedrals sit empty. Our cities are filled with mosques and Hindu temples, and the church is no longer a major influence. More and more people around us don't have any Christian background at all. They are strangers to the story we always assumed everyone near us in Jerusalem and Judea knew, at least partially. You see, we always assumed that people at least had the dots. They might have had the dots connected wrong. We could figure that out and help them reconnect the dots. But now the people that I run into in Starbucks and the grocery store don't have any of the dots. Do you want to pour out your life where people don't even know the story of Jesus? That is Europe. That is Canada. That is becoming Florida. But to reach them, we must become the missionaries that we used to send. My friends, do you hear the hum? Do you feel us lurching painfully on the road because we don't know what to do next? You know what's worse? I'm afraid the watching world might have noticed us floundering in this way. They've noticed that sometimes we don't know how to love people different from us in our own backyard as well as we do people who are different from us on the other side of the world. They might have noticed some of the ways we avoid Samaria and tax collectors and sinners. People, and some of these are our own children, have become convinced that the church is anything but a loving people, and they are honking at us and trying to get around us. But we've had no imagination for shifting the gears. The Spirit is moving. It is time. It's time to shift gears. Oh, we don't need to quit our efforts for the coasts and the inlands and the unreached people groups to call for missionaries in post-Christian Europe And Canada and the United States is not to call for the end of global mission. It isn't either or. It is both and. It is all of the above. The whole people of God are called to participate in the whole mission of God. But something has shifted. And if we only talk now about sending missionaries to the ends of the earth, we will miss what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is saying it's time for us to become missionaries to the world we are living in and to send out all of our people as missionaries to our Jerusalem and Judea, which have become post-Christian, and Samaria, which we still have not dealt with, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, which are on our streets. It's time for a great host of missionaries to be sent into our communities, to say we will depart from our comfort zones and take on missionary behaviors. And we will become babies in this place that was once familiar and let them raise us in their culture. And we will humble ourselves and learn languages. And we will sound like two-year-olds for a while. And immerse in cultures not our own and try new things and suffer losses, sometimes big losses, and try more new things. And sometimes fail. But we'll get up and try again because it is the spirit that is moving us. It's all very experimental. We really don't know what we're doing. But we can't resist the call. Do you hear the spirit moving? It's time to shift gears. 
Your district is beginning a mission partnership in Eastern Europe. At least parts of Eastern Europe are post-Christian. But Eastern Europe today is flooded with refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Ukraine. The church in Eastern Europe needs us to lend them strength and resources for all that they are facing. I think particularly today of dear friends who are serving in Poland and Moldova who certainly today have compassion fatigue. They are working tirelessly to welcome Ukrainian refugees. But the Florida district is also a mission field today. And if I had pledge cards today, like in the student volunteer movement, I would pass them out. And I would tell you that unless the Lord calls you to move somewhere else in the world, you should become a missionary on the Florida district. Not your pastor. You. (laughs) Pastors alone can't do this, folks. We need a great host of missionaries because there are people who don't know the good news of Jesus and they aren't likely to walk into our buildings. The Spirit is moving. Do you hear the hum? It's time. Let's shift gears. My prayer for you is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses to the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world. God bless you. Our church has made an intentional shift from merely only being an attractional style church, which says we welcome you in, and once you're in, will minister to you. Instead, we're choosing to be a missional church, not only around the world, which we support with finances and with literal missionaries, but we see Port Orange as a mission field. And just like a missionary going to a different state, when, when Jason went to a different country, The first thing he did wasn't, well, let me find a a storefront and let me find a PA system and let me find a... He wasn't worried about a building. What Jason did was make connections. What missionaries do is make connections. What people do when they're on the mission field is they say, I want to get to know you as a person because once we are right with each other, I can help you learn how to be right with God. And so we are shifting to the fact that we are all called to be missionaries. We may not be going overseas, but we are all called to missions. So it's my prayer that in the next couple of weeks, as Jason shares next week what he's doing, that you will start to um, be creative in ways that you think God may be calling you to minister that you might start to find new mission fields at your workplace and in your neighborhood and wherever you go. So will you stand with me? Jesus, I pray that you'll be with us. 
I pray that you will help us to make that switch, to shift that gear, to hear the hum of your spirit, because your spirit wants to reach more people. And your plan is to use us. The question is, will we tune our ears to hear your voice? And I pray that we will. I pray that we'll hear the hum of the Spirit and start to see your Spirit moving and working in people's lives all around our community. And then I pray that you will help us to do something bold. And that's to join in what you're doing. Because the truth is, you're calling us to join in. So I pray that we will have obedient hearts. Thank you for loving us so much that you not only forgive us, but you give us a, pers- a purpose and a mission. May we live in the fullness of your grace as we go out from this place to love you and to love others well and to do what our sign says, to give hope for everyone. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it's been good to be with you. Will you sing our benediction with me? If you're visiting, you may not know it, but it's easy, so you'll catch it fast. Sing with me. We sing hallelujah, let your kingdom come in our hearts, in our homes. Let your will be done as we go in your name. We shout and we proclaim Let your will be done in us. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Fathers, grab some swag, and then we've got some drinks out in the lobby for you, for everyone.